Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It's good to see you. And it's uh, <clears throat> the end of spring break and you are uh, about to head back to work. So enjoy your last day of freedom. Uh, we've been walking with Jesus toward Jerusalem. If you remember, several passages ago, he said, as we studied the Gospel of Luke, he says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And we've been seeing how it's a, a journey of, of suffering and pain, and it's been increasing. And we're going to see today, it really takes another step of hostility towards Jesus. Now, I want to give you a heads up. Next week, we're going to go out of textual order, and we're going to go for two weeks in uh, order that just skips ahead to chapter 23 and chapter 24 because of our own holidays. So next week, we're going to look at the passage that is uh, the Passion Week. We'll look at chapter 23, and we'll look at Palm Sunday, and then we'll look at the, the Passion Week and the Crucifixion. And then the following week is uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and we will be looking at chapter 24, the Resurrection, on that day, on that week. And then we'll uh, double back and get back into uh, the 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 order of Luke in about chapter 18, wherever we'll, we'll be uh, leaving off. So I just want to give you a heads up as you've been reading along. I want to encourage you to invite your friends. Uh, invite your friends next week. Uh, they're going to just see the incredible, powerful Passion Week narratives. It's just why did Jesus die on the cross? And then the following week, the resurrection. Obviously, you can bring them. You start inviting them now to next week, then you might get them to the week after that. So uh, go ahead and start now. We know this is an exciting time of year for us. So let me kind of review where we've been. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and if you remember, uh, about chapter 4, Luke, well, first of all, Luke said, I'm doing all this, I've carefully investigated all this, because I want you to know that you can be certain about the faith that's passed down to you. I've, I've talked to eyewitnesses, I've done my investigative journalism, I mean, he has said, I have cross-examined these witnesses, and I want you to be confident that what you're what the faith that has been passed down to you is actually truthful and reliable. And so then he's been tracing Jesus and the eyewitnesses. And Jesus sat down in the, the synagogue after reading Isaiah, a messianic passage about the coming of the Messiah. And he sat down and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. So he made some major claims about himself. And the text that he chose to identify himself with was this idea that the kingdom of God would be taking, taken to the poor, the marginalized, those who are in bondage physically, spiritually, socially, in every sense of the word, that he has come to set the captives free. And he seems to be all throughout Luke what we've seen, and I really didn't see this until really this is my first time preaching verse by verse through Luke, Luke. and he has been showing the nature of his kingdom is very much all about setting the captives free. And we saw how that was physically done as he healed people. We saw how it was spiritually done as he cast demons out. But we also have seen this social aspect where he has said that the church or the, the Jews at the time had gotten caught up in this idea that they were the religious elite, that their religion, their structures it was kind of this haves and have nots, us against them. And if you want to be with us, if you want to be in God's kingdom, then you need to jump through these hoops and join and be a part of our religion. And Jesus is just railing against that week after week. He remember the Good Samaritan. He said, hey, you got to love your neighbor. And the guys that we're going to see again today, he's like, well, wait a minute, who's my neighbor? And he says, basically everyone, including your enemies. And then in the banquet teachings, more recently, sitting at the table banquet, he's, he's talking to those and all this, 
status building and this self-exaltation. I'm going to invite the elite to my banquet, and they're going to invite me to their banquet, and it's going to make us all build our status. He says, you got to cut this out. That's not the way it works in my kingdom. He says, listen, in my kingdom, you use your privilege and your status and your influence to be a blessing to the underprivileged, the poor, and the marginalized. And then he just keeps railing on this. And then he encourages us to repent by reminding us of the parables of the lost, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal son. And he says, listen, God the Father has a heart that embraces the repentant. He embraces the repentant. So repent of such self-exaltation, this exclusive sense of the kingdom of God. And then he talks, talked to us last week about the dishonest manager. And the final phrase in the dishonest manager was, you can't love God and money. And he just stuck us in the gut with that. When you can't love God and money, which one are you going to choose? So the question is, how have you been responding to these sermons, these messages from Jesus that have been stomping on our toes? And if they haven't been stomping on your toes, you haven't been listening. Because this has been a brutal series of just, man, golly, can we get to an easier section of the text? How have you been responding, though? That's where he goes next, is how do you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? How do you respond when you are confronted with sin? I know how I respond. I immediately say, thank you so much for pointing out my sin, and I repent. Isn't that what you do? Amen. Liar! That's not how I respond. The way I respond, and I think you're probably a lot like me, is my first, especially if it's coming from my wife, who knows me best, my first thing is to justify myself. Oh, wait a minute. The only reason why I did that is because you did that. Or the only reason why I'm doing this is because of this, that, and the other. And that's what we're dealing with today. We see these, Luke's going to record for us how these Pharisees responded to Jesus hitting them in the wallet. And we're going to get four lessons in repentance, which is always fun, right? Four lessons in repentance. How to respond when we are confronted with our sin. And I ask the Lord to help us this morning. Lord, today we need you to work in our hearts as we do every week. If, if this is just a time where we intellectually think about things, it's not really what we're here for. Lord, we need your spirit to take the truths of your word, the only authority that's speaking today is your word and we need your spirit to take the truths of your word and not only convict us of sin but also to give us the grace to repent of that sin we want to leave here changed we want our hearts to be changed we want to talk about it this week and change our behaviors that we may more faithfully reflect your glory and it's in christ that we ask all these things amen All right, so we're going to see how the Pharisees responded to this teaching on money. And in these verses, we're going to find four lessons in repentance. We'll begin in verse 14. Luke tells us, the Pharisees, listen to this comment, who were lovers of money. So that's an inspired commentary from Luke about the condition of their heart. These Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus had been teaching. And how did they respond? Much like we do to our spouse. They ridiculed them. I hope we don't respond that way. But that's the way we want to instead of humble repentance. It says they ridiculed him. 
And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's stop there. So Luke adds a very important comment here saying, these guys are lovers of money. And that's key to understanding this text. He's telling us from his investigation and as an inspired author of the gospel being carried along by the Holy Spirit, he's explaining to us, here's the problem with them. When you wonder about their reactions, it's not because Jesus was wrong. It's not because Jesus. It was because they, in their hearts, didn't want to hear what Jesus said. He just said, you can't love God and money. And these lovers of money ridiculed Jesus. So their actions are revealing of the nature, the condition of their heart. And that's what the scriptures teach us, that our actions out of the mouth overflows the heart. And so what do they do as lovers of money when Jesus tells them to use their money to bless others, use their status to, be, to elevate others' status, not your own, humble yourselves and exalt others, use your influence to give, bless those, use your you're privileged to bless the underprivileged. And they're like, we're, you know what, we're done with this guy. And, and through the gospel, they seem to have been tracking with Jesus going, I don't know, this guy's all right. He's got a crowd, he's got power, he's got influence, he's got a crowd. And now they're like, you know what, I'm done. Now why are they done? Because preachers started preaching about money. Always happens. I've done this long enough to know. I hear the most feedback when I talk about money. It hits us where it hurts. There's just something powerful. You know, Jesus spoke just about more on money than anything else. Because you're messing with our heart. You're messing with what we love. Jesus just said you can't love God money. Luke says they love money. And so how they respond, they ridiculed Jesus. And so that's the whole scene being developed here, is that when we are confronted with something that really gets at the heart, how do we respond? Notice in particular, Jesus describes what they're doing in verse 15 with a particular phrase. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. To justify in a very practical sense, not a theological sense, but in a practical sense means to prove you're right. To self-justify is to go, okay, what can I do to prove that I'm right? I'm going to point out your flaws. I'm going to make my case. I'm going to do anything I can to show how I'm right, and I don't need to do what then? I don't need to repent. I'm going to justify myself. And here we see this is the difference between Jesus' perspective and theirs, that they think that their goal is to just as long as I can justify, if I can make my case before men then I'm okay, that's their goal, is can I convince the people that I was right? And Jesus says, that's not the issue here. You may very well be able to convince everybody around you that you're right. You may be able to convince yourself that you're right, but what really matters is what God thinks, and God looks at the heart. God knows your heart. You see, Jesus' teaching was threatening their status before men. Jesus was challenging the very 
sense of their identity, their power, their status, and what people thought. And so they're like, well, we've got to justify ourselves before all these people. So what are we going to do? We're going to tear him down. We're going to tear him down. If I can discredit the messenger, then the message against me doesn't have its punch against me. So I'm going to tear Jesus down. I'm going to ridicule Jesus. Notice how Jesus responds. He goes beyond their words and their attempts to justify themselves before men, goes to their heart and says, that heart right there that's doing that, that's an abomination before God. This is a prideful response to the conviction of sin. One that says, I'm going to puffin up, I'm going to stiffen my neck, I'm going to dig in, and I'm going to build my case the Bible has a word for that, and it's called hardening the heart. Lesson number one, when you're convicted with sin, don't harden your heart. It is an abomination to God. Do not harden your heart. Now remember, when, when you feel the, the pain and the shame of conviction and having your sin exposed that is actually a gift from God. It's kind of like a vaccination. Y'all probably don't think much about vaccinations these days, but what is a vaccination? It's kind of creepy, isn't it? We're putting the, the, the bug in me so that I don't get it really bad, right? That's the biological term, med students, bug. I couldn't think of the other word. What is it? I'm putting the disease in me. So that I don't get the really bad. That's what conviction is. It's like, let me give you a little pain in the heart. So I want to prevent you from disaster. And the first response when we get a little pain of conviction is to want to say, oh, no, no, no. Uh-uh, let me discredit the messenger. Let me build a wall around myself. Let me harden my heart to that pain. And the point here is do not harden your heart, that is an abomination to God because it's a, a self-exalting, prideful, lifting myself above God and his word and what it says about me. And pride is, is at the root of all sin. We see the warnings against pride that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do not harden your heart when you feel the conviction or when someone who loves you shares with you, I'm concerned about this. Don't harden your heart. Second lesson is found in verses 16 through 18. I'm going to move pretty quickly to save time at the end to go through some examples that may be helpful. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus explains the problem, and he explains it in terms of the law or the scriptures. Look what he says in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, has, is preached. And everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What in the world is he talking about? Well, what we need to understand is Jesus is saying the word of God has been taught and it's not going to change. When you are confronted with the word of God, don't think that the word of God is going to change. You need to change. And he's going to say in a minute, it's very clear, the word is sufficient to point out where we need to change. 
And he's been challenging them to change in this area of of the poor, marginalized, and oppressed, that they should use their status, wealth, and influence to bless those. And it's completely contradictory to everything that they have been building their faith upon, their religious structures upon. They have been totally skewing things, and, and now he's coming in and it's just messing with their heads. In fact, it's so contradictory to the way that they thought that the Bible was their Bible was telling them to live, that they say, you are voiding the law. And he's going, no, 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 the law will not be done away with at all. Not one dot of the law will be voided. I'm not voiding the law, I'm fulfilling the law. And they're saying, no, we're fulfilling the law. And he says, no, you're twisting the law. That's what's going on here, and that's why out of nowhere... The next verse pops up, and what Jesus is doing before we get to it, it's so strange that I want to explain it before we get to it. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 24, 4. It's on divorce. Right in the middle of nowhere, he throws this verse in there, and it seems like, what is he talking about? Now, for them, I don't think it came out of nowhere for two reasons. First of all, the word abomination is mentioned in Deuteronomy 24, and he just said abomination. So I think abomination is in his mind, and he's talking about how they are twisting the scriptures. And then he says, for example, Deuteronomy 24, 24. Now the second reason why I think this verse on divorce is not out of nowhere for them is because they had this phrase, I've learned from uh, scholars in their commentaries, there was this phrase that said, three nets enslave Israel, and they are idolatry, wealth, and the interpretation on divorce. It was like a saying, hey, there's three nets that, ens- that ensnare us, idolatry, wealth, and divorce. And then he's just thinking about that. He's heard this word. He said abomination. And so then he says, you're using scriptures to twist, you're twisting scriptures to fit your sinful desires. And then he says in verse 18, in Luke, he records it, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And we're like, where'd that come from? So let me explain. Please hear me. One verse does not give you the full understanding of God's teaching on marriage and divorce. That's another subject. But let me show you what he's doing with this or what I believe he's doing with this. You see, God's law clearly teaches that the marriage, the covenant of marriage, is is something to be treasured, protected, and guarded for all eternity. In God's eyes, you're married forever. It's a covenant of, of marriage. I, I tell this every, I'm doing about three weddings in the next quarter, and I'm telling people, this is a, a, when you walk into this room, the door closes behind you. There's no exit. That needs to be your intent as you head into this. And that's affirming the b- biblical teaching. And the Jews had this in their law. But then, because of sin, and we live in a fallen world, messed up things happen, messy, relationships are messy, without minimizing the significance of marriage, Moses gave something called a certificate of divorce. Why did he give that? But he says, because of the hardness of their hearts. What was going on? Men were just disposing women. And when they disposed them, they had no protections, no evidence that they could be married, nothing to protect them. They were just disposed of. And so Moses says, no, you're not so you got these contradictions. Well, what do we we got to protect these ladies and we've got to give them paperwork that says, no, you can't treat them like that. And it would be very hard to get that certificate of divorce. 
So the law allowed for, because of the sinful pattern going on, divorce to be done properly. And what did they do with that law? All right. Now I got a permission slip. As long as I get this piece of paper, I can just cast her out. And so they took that law and twisted it to fit their sinful desires. And that's what he says, that's what you're doing when it comes to money, wealth, status, and influence. You don't like what I'm saying. You don't like what God's word says. And so you're twisting it to fit your sinful desires. And he's upholding the, the, the marriage and saying, no, marriage is an eternal covenant. And he's upholding his word here to say, God says, use your money, wealth, position, power, and prestige to influence others for the kingdom. In other words, lesson number two is don't twist scriptures. Don't twist the word of God to fit your sinful desires. When you are confronted with the word... And then you don't like it and you don't like the pain. The first stage is I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to justify myself. And then secondly, when I come across scripture, I'm going to say, maybe we've been getting this wrong. And I'm going to twist the scriptures to fit my sinful desires. I'm going to do anything but submit myself to the clear teaching of God's word. And that's stage two of a scary, scary downward spiral in life that you do not want to go down. Don't. Twist the scripture. We'll get some examples again, so I'm going to keep moving. Let's look at verse 19. Jesus tells us another parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So he's describing this guy as rich as rich gets, okay? That's the intentional extreme language here. There's no, there's no in-between on this parable. You got the filthy rich. He's in purple, which is nothing but royalty, and fine linen. With the process to have fine linen back then was incredibly expensive. And he feasted, not just feasted, he feasted sumptuously, not just on occasion, every day. So in this parable, he's got the extreme at one end to say this guy was filthy rich, absolutely top of the food chain. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And he goes with extreme language the opposite direction. This poor man is covered with sores who desired to be fed. He's begging for food, not just any food, not give me a nice meal, but anything that would just fall from the crumbs of this rich man's table. So much, so disgusting, so sad, even the, like, that's not extreme enough. He says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So there's no in-between here. There's no saying, well, maybe he didn't have enough money, or maybe he needed to save a little more for retirement, and maybe this guy should have done better for himself. No, there's no in-between. Let's take that off the table. And the poor man died. And he is carried away by angels to Abraham's side. And here he starts to describe in parabolic language what we recognize as this, is, this guy went to heaven. He went to Abraham's side. 
And then the rich man also died and was buried. And he's in Hades, which we would say there's a parabolic picture of hell. He's in torment, he's lifting up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and he sees Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Would you send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue? For I am in anguish in this flame. The roles have been reversed. This ultimate rich man is at the gate begging for mercy. Just give me a drink of water. Just a drip of water. Just touch my tongue. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, between us there's this great chasm between that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here are not able to. None may cross from there to us. It's too late. So Jesus is now giving us a stark, stark, about as stark as they get, a stark warning against this prideful hardening of heart, twisting of scriptures to make sure I don't have to repent of ignoring the person at my gate. These are extremes. There's no in-between. There's no doubt. This rich man was ignoring Jesus' teaching to feed the poor, to help the marginalized. He's at his gate, which he passed in every day, came back in every day, and he didn't do a thing about it. And then it was too late. Here's the point. Lesson three. Repent while you can. Repent while you still can. That's the sense of this, is it's too late. You can't cross over now. There comes a point in time where you can't repent. You've hardened your heart, and it's to the point where you don't even hear the word of God anymore. You don't even respect the word of God anymore. You don't even listen to that person who is speaking truth to you in love, and you can't repent anymore. You get to the point where you can't repent, and all of this parable is showing us that is not consistent with those who will find themselves in heaven. That type of behavior is consistent with those who will find themselves in anguish in hell. So repent now while you still can. And final lessons in verse 27 through 31. He continues and he said, this is the rich man talking back to Abraham. Well, then I beg you, Father, send, send him to my father's house. I've got five brothers that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, wow, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them hear them. Let them hear the word of God. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. They, I know they have the word of God. I know they've got most of the prophets. We, we read it every night. But if you would just, if someone would come from the dead, <laughs> if someone would rise from the dead, I think they'd repent then. That is a sad commentary on the condition of their heart. 
if someone would come from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you won't listen to God's word, then it doesn't matter. You're not going to listen to someone who rose from the dead. Wow. It's convicting. Moses and the prophets is a reference to the Old Testament. We have the New Testament on top of that, which is like an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Just in case you missed what the point of the Old Testament was, here's an inspired commentary on the New Testament. It's all about Jesus, a man who was God, who took on flesh, who died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. And from the dead, he comes alive and says, humble yourselves, admit your sin, don't harden your heart, repent, and you will be forgiven. And if you will not listen to that word, nothing will change your heart. So Jesus takes away all the excuses here. The point is this, God knows your heart. God knows my heart. And when we exalt it among men, it's an abomination. So here's point four, listen to God's word. So it's kind of like a sneak attack on us, lessons, four lessons on repent, 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 repent. Don't, hum, don't exalt yourself, don't harden your heart, don't twist the scripture. What, what are you doing when you are convicted by God's word? How does this how does God's word help us repent? It, it reminds us, it changes our mind, it gives us a new, a new world view, and it, it reminds us of our sin, and it humbles us. It humbles us. It confronts us. It convicts us. It chisels away our heart. And daily reading of the word is like a chisel. It's a sword cutting through our hearts and saying, yes, you are sinful. And when we hear that, how do we respond? By God's grace, we humble ourselves, but in our flesh, we build a wall. And we harden our hearts and we self-justify and we stiffen up and say no. And we, we twist the scriptures to make our case. But are we listening to God's word? I don't know about you, but the way this feels to me is at first when I hear the, the conviction and I don't want to hear it and I start to justify myself, justify myself, it feels really good. And that's what's so scary about it. It feels really good, and I start convincing myself that I'm right. I start building a team of people around me who echo back to me what I want to hear. Then I start questioning the scriptures. Well, I don't even know if that's what that says. It's scary. It feels so right. It feels so good. give a few examples first of all let's let's talk about money that's what Jesus has been talking about let's go with the, the the idea of welfare everyone have a happy feeling inside right now welfare does that make you feel good oh yeah that's a great idea when I think of welfare you know I go you know it's just ridiculous all that's doing is encouraging people not to work encouraging people to to have babies because they get more money they're abusing the system. 
And Jesus, you're telling me to share the wealth? Come on. And so I start to use the abuse, their sin, as an excuse to not obey. And I start to surround myself with people. I turn it kind of, kind of into a political argument. Now it's not really about me. It's about this idea and how messed up it is. Come in here, read the word, be convicted. I got to share the wealth. I got to be a blessing to others. I'm just going to ignore that. Next thing I know, I'm walking by the poor every day, hungry man. I don't care. I'm not compassionate anymore. You know, Jesus said, the poor you're always going to have with you. Twisted scripture. Fit my, my position. You know, I don't really have to care about these people. And if I'm confronted, what do I say? Well, they need to get a job. They need to work. And that justifies my hardness. As if I know whether they've tried to work. As if I know whether they're capable. Oh, I'm stepping on toes this morning. I justify my sinful lack of compassion, which is clearly taught in the word, by pointing out others' sinful actions or my assumption of their sinful actions. Have you ever done this? Well, let's think about it this way. Maybe someone sinned against you very personally. <clears throat> and what do you do? We tell others, oh, and it feels so good. Let me tell you what they did. Probably in the form of a prayer request, right? Would you pray for me? Because they did this, the little scoundrel. And we start to tear them down and build ourselves up. And it feels so good. It almost feels like we're getting revenge, like we're getting even, like we're getting what we want and we can't do it. But it feels good. And then one day my trusted friend says, Tracy, you might need to check your heart towards them. Like, what are you talking about? No. You know what they did to me? And now I'm going to put them in that category. How could you do this to me? How could you say this to me? I thought you were my friend, and now I'm hardening my heart towards the friend. I'm hardening my heart towards the original offender, and now I'm developing a pattern of how I deal with this kind of feeling inside. Is I just harden my heart, I build my case, I justify self, I build people around me who tell me what I want to hear. My ears will be tickled, and I don't have to listen to the word of God and the pain that it sends me when I'm already in pain because of their sin against me. Then we bring it to the marriage. What if the person who hurt you is your spouse? And you're in this pattern of hardness, hardening the heart, pointing to the other, pointing out their sin justifying self, if I can make them, if I can ridicule them, if I can tear them down, if I can make the case that they're worse than me, I don't have to deal with me. And that pattern is a downward death spiral of relationships and destructive to your marriage. 
Jesus is saying, don't harden your heart. Don't twist the scriptures. Repent now while you can. While you can. So what should we do when we're convicted by this word, by by the Holy Spirit? Humble yourself. Ask the Lord for help. Lord, show me my sin. Lord, convict me. Help me not justify myself and quit looking at their sin. Let me tell you, the secret to healing relationships is you focus on your own sin. It's amazing what that does in a relationship. Just focus on dealing with your own sin. Do your own business of your own heart. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. And don't have to justify it. Let me tell you why the gospel is beautiful. That when you've been justified already by the righteousness of Christ, you don't have to justify yourself. You're free to admit you're a sinner. Because God sees you as sinless. Because he's given you the righteousness of Christ. If you're trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness. But to self-justify is to deny the justification that Christ offers. So in Christ, we're free to admit our sin, humble ourselves, heed the word of God, turn from that, and be motivated by the grace that he says, I consider you righteous. Now go, get up, and enjoy the abundant life I've set before you by obeying my commands. Let's think deeply on that this week. Father, I pray that we will be challenged this week. That we will discuss in our community group. Discuss in our homes with our family. That the gospel sets us free to admit our failures to turn from our sin because you give us credit for Jesus's perfections and so we don't have to justify ourselves we don't have to tear others down to make ourselves feel better about ourselves we're free indeed to turn and to walk in the newness of life. Lord, make us a people who humbly repent when you convict us of sin. It's by God's grace and through Christ that we can do this. Amen. Stand together.